The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemeritus, your financial modeling partner. We're trusted modeling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at nemeritas.co.uk. Hi, and welcome to the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. My name is Stephen Aldridge, Managing Director at Numeritas, and one of your hosts for this series. This is the second episode of our podcast, a show for finance professionals by finance professionals, where we sit down with the industry's leading CFOs to uncover how they got to where they are today, what they're focusing on right now, and their advice for aspiring CFOs. Throughout the series, I, along with my co-host and fellow Managing Director, Demma McCann, will be talking to some of the most inspiring senior executives to take you behind the scenes of the industry, shine a light on real-world issues, and share the latest trends that matter to you, whether you are a CFO now or you are on your quest towards becoming a CFO. In today's episode, I speak with Sean Wotherston, CFO at UNI, the London-based tech company dedicated to shifting the balance between independent business and larger franchises by helping small businesses find the services and tools they need to succeed. Sean started his career at Ernst & Young before moving into investment banking with Credit Suisse and then Commerzbank. Following his time at Commerzbank, he became the in-house banker at Avanti Communications, where he was involved in a number of high-profile equity raises for communication satellite launches, including one for Elon Musk's SpaceX. In 2013, Sean landed his first CFO role at online fashion retailer Brand Alley, which he joined following the MBO from News International. From that point onwards, Sean held multiple CFO roles at a range of rapidly growing tech companies, before joining the team at UNI earlier this year. In today's conversation, Sean shares a wealth of valuable insights from his journey to becoming a CFO, including the benefits of working with early stage and rapid growth companies and how they can help you accelerate your journey to becoming a CFO, the top priorities for today's finance function and why automation and AI will create more opportunities for accountants, even if career coaches tell you otherwise and Sean's four key pearls of wisdom that will help you gain the skills, experience and contacts it takes to become a great CFO. It was great to learn more about Sean's rare combination of finance, strategy and investment banking experience, and to find out why he chose to work with early stage and rapid growth companies, rather than with the FTSE 100 or 250 firms that many perceive as a more secure career. Whether you're already a CFO, on the path towards a CFO position, or you're currently in a different role and want to switch tracks, I know you'll get a lot of value from today's episode. So, without further ado, please enjoy the second episode of The Forward Thinking CFO with Sean Wotherston. So, thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast, Sean. Uh, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for inviting me. Good, good. So, as you know, this is The Forward Thinking CFO podcast. Uh, to get us started, it's a good idea if we look back at how you got to be the forward-thinking CFO you are today. So could you describe for us the 
the journey that you've been on and the key stepping stones that you took to get to your current role, please? Sure. So I think there were probably three key stepping stones for me in my journey to you and I. The first is qualifying as a chartered accountant. So I think a formal accountancy qualification is still important in gaining a CFO role. I recognise that not all companies require their CFOs to have that, have a qualification, but it certainly increases the number of roles that you're of interest to and, and that headhunters will put you forward for. And I actually really enjoyed audit because you could ask lots of questions as a relative youngster of fairly senior people. So I used it as a chance to learn a lot about the companies that I was auditing. And I trained at Ernst & Young in Edinburgh. So I felt that I got the best of both worlds. I would be doing FTSE 100 clients one week. And then the next week, I would get a, a, an envelope with the general ledger of a small business and I would prep the accounts and then audit them shortly afterwards. So definitely the, the, the CA the qualification has been very helpful. The second key step for me has been the move into investment banking, because there I got to ask a lot of questions again, but this time they were slightly more forward looking. So I was contributing to the strategy and the growth of the business. And obviously also learning about raising debt and equity and buying and selling stakes in businesses. And that's a lot of what I use in my day-to-day -day role now. Um, I tend to work in roles where there is a financing need. And so I fall back a lot on the experience that I gained from my time in investment banking. It also gave me a lot of experience of, of working at board level, which I find very useful now as I deal with investors and directors all day, every day. And then probably the third stepping stone was my first CFO role. So I think as any FC knows and any CFO knows, getting your first CFO title is by far the hardest to obtain. And I was fortunate to be appointed outside of a headhunter's process because really I wasn't a typical candidate and I could understand now where I can understand now why I wasn't getting onto long lists, let alone short lists as a banker who, who had left banking despite their qualification. So getting that first CFO role was, was critical and also was an eye-opener about the breadth of the CFO's role. So coming from a banking background, I'd really only seen the CFO in the context of a major financing event or the presentation of results to the city. So it was quite an eye-opener getting into the detail of provisions and refund policies and, and the day-to-day -day cash flow in a business that had just been bought out by management and where things were really pretty tight. So that, that, was, uh, that was a huge eye-opener for me. And then from there, I've been able to develop into, a, into a, these sort of broader CFO roles that I've been doing for the last five or six years. Right. Uh, okay. So just uh, so that uh, listeners have a, an idea of the sort of companies you've worked in, would you like to pick out kind of the key places that you wouldn't just give us a quick you know, headlines of uh, sure. what those so, companies so were? After Ernst & Young, I moved into investment banking. I spent probably four or five years at Rothschild, four or five years at Credit Suisse. And then I moved to Dresdner Kleinwood, which was bought by Commerce Bank. So about um, 15 to 18 years in investment banking, mostly in M&A, but also um, equity capital markets and debt capital markets. So raising equity and debt for companies. And then I moved from there 
essentially to, to become the in-house banker at a UK-quoted company called Avanti Communications, uh, raising money for them. And from there, I moved into a CFO role. Right, okay. So as you say, you've, you've got a, I'm not sure how rare, but a, a, perhaps a rare combination of sort of finance, strategy, and investment banking experience. And that will have no doubt shaped the way that you look at the role of CFO. And in particular, I think the banking area is, is one that maybe some CFOs, or a lot of CFOs don't have. Do you think that's given you a unique perspective on the role of CFO? And is there something that other CFOs could learn from that if you had a, a word or two of advice for them? Yeah, so I, I think I share the same degree of curiosity as every CFO is going to have. I like digging around. I like understanding. I like reconciling. I think where my perspective is perhaps slightly different is that I'm always looking at things from the point of view of the provider of capital. So whether it's the lender or an investor, and if the investor is the current one or a future one, I'm always thinking about how it's going to be perceived by the people who are putting money into the business. So I'll tend to look at an issue such as a write-off or, or an adjustment from the perspective of how the investors will view that and how this will impact our ability, say, to sell a story if we're raising money or renegotiate covenants if, if we've had a breach. Uh, so I'm always perhaps thinking about the external perspective. And, and I'm also always, when I'm preparing analysis, I'm always thinking about how to present it. So, you know, I spent in my, my years of investment banking a massive amount of time preparing and giving presentations on, on detailed financial analysis and situations. So I tend to think always about what is the output when I'm asked to produce, when I'm asked a question, you know, and how can we use this data as easily as possible? And it probably also means that, that I'm more involved in the strategy of a business than perhaps some CFOs are. It means I'm probably more dependent than on having a, a strong financial controller who understands the numbers and, and understands what we're trying to achieve. But I, I probably am slightly more externally focused than, than many CFOs are certainly at this size of the market. Right. Now, one of the companies you mentioned there that uh, you've worked for in the past was uh, Avanti Communications. And for those who aren't familiar with that, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about it. But it, it was, I think, an in interesting and unusual one because it's about putting satellites into space, isn't it? Communication satellites. And must have had, I think, some uh, interesting issues related to you know, risk and uh, you know, insurance and, and that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah, so Avanti um, was a, a AIM-listed business that was founded to develop and launch and run satellites. It was taken private a year or two ago. But um, when I was working for it as a banker, when I was advising them as a banker, and when I worked for them, we were raising money to launch satellites and, and then sell the capacity on those satellites. The financing and the construction and the launch of satellites is a specialised but fairly common occurrence. So there are specialist, there are teams of specialist lawyers and bankers and providers of capital who are experienced in in the sector. And there are many many satellites orbiting the Earth that have been paid for by the markets. And there are large quoted companies like Inmarsat and Utilsat and SES who are operating in the market. Where we were slightly different was we were selling to a different spectrum of the market. So most satellites are operating 
either in the straightforward telecoms market or they're operating on sat on TV. So the, the satellites that Sky uses, for example, to beam its coverage across the UK. What was different at Avanti was that we were targeting internet broadband in remote areas. So it was all about providing high-speed broadband to people in the remote locations of Europe and ultimately um, as, as the business developed to remote locations across Africa. So the risk element here was around educating the investors and educating the, the banks about the potential of this market and how we intended to monetize the market. So it was a big education process. We had to tap into different pools of capital to those that normally invest in the space industry so that we could offer people the returns that they expected. So a typical investor who invests in an SES or a Utilsat where the satellites are launched and they're already 80% full is not the sort of investor who would also invest in Avanti where we would launch the satellites and they would be maybe 10 or 15% full. It's a very different risk profile and we have to offer a different reward as well. Interesting, yeah. And and the the risk, I, I suppose, is there a significant risk of them, uh, you know, blowing up on on uh, takeoff, or is well, that something you so, have to ensure so against? Well? To, what you try to do there is you try to de-risk it by buying the best that you can afford. So investors take a lot of stock by the people you are using to construct and launch your satellites, and also who you're insuring your satellite through. So a classic example is that to begin with on the first of Avanti satellites, they had contracted with a business called SpaceX, which is very popular now because Elon Musk um, owns it and they've just launched the first United States manned launch in, in decades. But 15 years ago, they were a, or uh, 12 years ago, they were a, a startup essentially, a well-financed one, but a startup. And Avanti had contracted with them to launch their first satellite. And this was perceived as being quite risky. And it was such that they raised money, especially to move their launch provider from SpaceX to a business called Ariane, which is a Franco-European business that has had 82 successful launches in a row. And even though we were paying out a material amount of additional money, the share price actually increased because we had de-risked the project. So likewise, we um, Avanti paid extra to have American businesses look, construct its satellites. So everything was about trying to de-risk things as much as, as they could by hiring or paying for the best, basically. And, and perhaps arguably, I mean, if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't have been able to raise the money at all. Yeah, so I suppose it's, it's uh, the old fundamentals of uh, finding the right sort of investors with uh, and... Uh, looking at what's important to them. Yeah, I mean, the, so raising the debt and the equity are really two quite different things. So on the debt side, the satellite manufacturers actually are a huge help in getting you access to the debt. So each country that manufactures satellites views it as being of strategic importance. So their satellite manufacturers are able to access essentially government pools of capital, trade finance it's known as, to encourage you to buy the satellite from their manufacturer. So we accessed debt capital at rates that were far cheaper than we could have accessed in the normal markets. 
because it was associated with buying specific satellites from certain manufacturers. Those rates were attractive and low. They did tend to come with tight covenants, which caused issues because in the space industry, nothing ever happens on time. And so when you have tight covenants around launch dates and, um, and operation dates, things can get pretty tight. And eventually, I mean, the the, uh, the covenants became too restrictive and we refinanced those debts in the high yield bond market. But we would not have been able to finance them in the high yield bond market two years earlier when we started financing and constructing the satellite. So it was a necessary first step, an interim step, if you like, before moving on to the high yield bond market. And then on the equity side, really a satellite project is kind of a 20 year DCF. So in terms of the time span, it takes a year or two to raise the capital, two years to build the satellite. You don't really sign the contract until you've got almost all the, all the money available. And then a satellite operates for about 15 years before it gets shot out into, into further outer space and the new satellite is moved into the orbit, uh, into the orbital slot that that old satellite was in. So essentially, it's like a DCF that you'll be very familiar with. You, you assemble your inputs and you build your model and then you take it out to the market and, and you get ready for it to be poked at and challenged and, and questioned about. Perhaps the advantage of being on AIM was that if somebody's investing only a very small proportion of their portfolio, sometimes it's just for a bit of interest for a fund manager or a private client broker just wants to add a bit of interest to their portfolio and have something to talk to their investors about. They'll do a bit less due diligence than, say, the private equity funds that, that you're associated with, where things are crawled over in massive detail and every assumption is challenged. Um, so there's a bit more willingness to take things on trust, given the relatively smaller amounts involved in terms of the percentage of a portfolio. So that's the upside. You get to raise the money. The downside is that if you miss the benchmarks you've given and you have to report that to the market, management spends a massive amount of time going around talking to the investors, dealing with their questions from multiple, multiple investors. And so it, it creates a lot of noise and a lot of friction and, and takes up management time and risks putting the project even further behind. So it's kind of swings and roundabouts. But I suppose at least at Avanti, we were able to raise the money to launch the projects, um, which perhaps under private equity investment, we wouldn't have been able to do because of the, the amount of time spent investigating the model and, and understanding it. Yeah, as you say, I think uh, there's a certain attractiveness to having something like that in your portfolio that's uh, a little unusual. A good story to talk about. Now, let's move on a little bit. You, you're, you've worked in a number of earlier stage and rapid growth companies, perhaps considered more risky than working in FTSE 100, FTSE 250 type firms. What sort of things do you look for when you're considering a, joining a company like that? And, and how do you weigh up the sort of risks that you're taking? And uh, yeah, any advice for people who might be considering a similar move? Yeah. So because I have a background in raising money, I tend to look for businesses that need to raise capital. So I'm not really a CFO for a business as usual at a, at a steady rate. It's not really what I want to do, and, and I'm probably quite expensive for that sort of business in terms of, of remuneration. However, I, I do enjoy the whole breadth of the CFO role, everything from the decision-making, the strategy, all the way through to dealing with some of the finer details of, of building the KPIs and the general ledger. 
So I tend towards the smaller and medium-sized businesses because then I can get involved in the full breadth of, of activities. And it means I can see the whole project through from professionalizing the reporting uh, all the way through to, to raising the money. So I, I tend to get involved now in, in roles where there's a, a need to professionalize the reporting and then take that improved reporting to the investors or a new set of investors to raise more money to finance the development of the business. In terms of how I weigh up the risks, I find it very hard, but getting easier as I become more experienced and I am able to be a bit pickier about what I do and more confident about what I do and my capabilities. So getting your second CFO role is a multitude of times easier than your first. And as you progress each time, you can ask more questions, you can be more upfront and, and more assertive, if you like, in the interview process. So now I, I try to look at each role really as if I'm the investor, which in a way I am, except I'm investing my career and my time and I'm not able to spread the risk. But I, I try to assess the opportunity such that if I'm not going to make a financial return, at least I'm getting a broadening experience that will advance my career and make me more attractive for the next opportunity in several years time. So I, I wish there was the perfect answer to, to how to make a success of the next role. The, the thing I don't do enough about probably is spend enough time with the CEOs before I join. So I sort of find that there's, you know, momentum builds up around the hiring process and there's a bit of a rush to sign up either from my side or from the recruiter or from the, the investor who wants a CFO on board. And uh, I, I certainly wish that I spent more time just getting to know the CEOs, not not because there have been issues around it, but, but when you join, my experience is that things are rarely as they were made out in the interview, usually a bit more desperate, a bit more work to be done. And it would be better to have that stronger bond before you start. It, it usually works out fine, but um, I think it's a critical relationship. And I, I wish that I invested more time in that at the beginning. As you say, the uh, relationship between CEO and CFO is probably a, a extremely important. Yeah, one of those early stage businesses, one of the, one of those that I suppose perhaps the tables were turned a bit because you were an experienced CFO joining company as their first ever C CFO, which was Paybreak. How was that as an experience, and what did you find when you joined? Did you? Uh, I know that you were doing quite a bit of work on the finance function and so on, but uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I, I joined Paybreak at a crucial point in its development. So Paybreak is a consumer lender. It uses fintech to make better and fairer lending decisions on behalf of the retailers and the people who borrow money. So it's it's aimed at people who, for example, might want to take a course in order to progress their career, but their employer is unwilling to, uh, to finance that. So they take the course and then hopefully they repay it back through improved earnings. It also does some more bog standard consumer credit, people buying sofas or, or buying, buying number plates and things like that on credit. So my predecessor had done an excellent job in raising debt off a relatively limited amount of information. And so that enabled us to, to grow the business or to start to grow the business. However, growth was lagging and lagging budget and the financial forecasting was quite limited. So there was the risk of breaching 
covenants without realizing it until just before the event and just before we had to tell the event tell the lenders so this meant that numbers could be restated it just in the management accounts nothing sort of so serious as the audit but numbers might change and this meant a challenging relationship with the lenders and frustrations for the shareholders and also there were instances where we were lending money to people without a really full understanding of the risk profile so i i my task to begin with was getting to grips with all of that. In terms of building the foundations, I was lucky to have a very capable financial controller, um, and that enabled me to focus on designing improvements in the financial information. I, I renegotiated with our lenders on several occasions on our, on our covenants as a sort of progressive series of steps through the course of six to nine months, and essentially to sort of stabilise the ship as a platform for growth. And going through these steps enabled us to win the confidence of our major shareholder who then invested further in the business. And as, as you know, Numeritas were important in this by building the financial model that we used as the tool to help, help us get to grips with what was going on in the business and also actually a tool that we used throughout the business. So we were able to use it to make the sales team completely responsible for their budgets in a way that previously they hadn't been all the way through to having a kind of 18 month perspective on our on our debt covenants. And really, we were able to identify issues three or four months in advance and negotiate solutions with our lenders before they became problems rather than afterwards. So again, that went smoothly. And then using the model and a, a new presentation of the business, we were actually able to refinance the business at, at an interest rate that was about 40% less than we were paying the original lenders with a 20% reduction in non-utilization fees, a whole series and, and far better covenants because we could just provide much more clarity to the new lenders, NatWest Bank, than they had previously been able to see when they had been asked to pitch for the business uh, two, two and a half years earlier. So really that kind of clarity that we brought in the financial information really paid dividends for us. Well, it's nice to hear that there's a very tangible benefit from the model there. That It's often more about information, but uh, yeah, that's, that's good to hear. And uh, you've recently uh, moved on from Paybreak and, and joined, if I pronounce this correctly, is it you and I? Yes, uh, you and I. <laughs> A tech company. So this is a company empowering uh, smaller businesses to get online. This is uh, another role, I guess, where you you may be having to look at the finance function and and uh, maybe make changes there. But do you, do you start with a kind of a I don't know a, a hundred day strategy or something of that sort and and go from there or. Uh, is that something you can talk about? How's that? Yeah, going? I'm just trying to work out if I've been there 100 days. Not, <laughs> not yet. 60, 70. I, I, I don't have a really a, a clear 100 day strategy because when you join, you get dragged into things left, right, and centre. I, I know broadly what my objectives are that I that I have to achieve, but it's much more. I find much more to begin with that uh, you are sorting out the day to day issues. I mean, here the finance team. Well, the finance function was in a, in a relatively good state, but that's because one of the founders had been very heavily involved in running, overseeing the finance team and, and overseeing the financial controller and team below them. And really what I've done by joining, I've taken a lot of that off him, freed him up 
to focus on other areas of the business and drive the growth. And then I've been able to move the finance team forward. So it's been a pleasant surprise, actually, in this case, that things are pretty much as they were presented in the interview process. But really, now I'm able to start moving forward in areas like investor reporting uh, and a huge amount of work on on our KPIs and working out what it is that that drives the business and, and is going to make a difference for us as we go forward. Okay, um, so let's let's uh, kind of move on a little bit now to uh, kind of career advice for uh, people who are listening who may be aspiring to become CFOs. If you think back to your first CFO role at, at Brandelli, what do you wish you'd known then that, uh, that 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 you could have told yourself from this standpoint the way you are now? Uh, well, I suppose I wish I wish I'd been aware that the CFO roles role is so diverse because I might have tried to make the move earlier, to be honest. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating role to get to see across the entire business and really influence the entire business. You know, in many people's eyes, you are the number two in the entire organisation and, and that gives you a remarkable breadth of control and breadth of authority. The The other thing that I wish I'd been aware of was that the way that so many other teams don't focus on the numbers in decision making and, and what a huge opportunity that is for finance to move from being the kind of the scorekeeper to actually helping people to drive growth in revenue and in margins. So I think it's easy to forget it when you come through audit and then either through a finance team or, or through banking. It's always about the numbers. It's always about the impact of the analysis. And you're always conscious that there's something underpinning it. When I joined Brand Alley, I, I found some of my colleagues were making decisions or they wanted to make decisions, but they just didn't have the tools to make them properly. And as a finance team, we started to build tools to help them. So simple things like uh, properly allocating the cost of a photo shoot. Brand Alley is an online retailer, but nobody was allocating the cost of photo shoots across the brands that actually used models versus the brands that only had still life or were kitchenware or whatever. And so when we were working out what the selling price should be, we weren't accurately working out what the gross margin was when you factored in the costs on a on a truly accurate basis. So we built a model that ascribed the cost per image fully in, in detail and the average number of images used per shoot, etc. And it, it completely changed the pricing structure. And that obviously feeds into, into gross margin. It feeds into bonuses for the sales team. It changed the way they behaved because suddenly if they were having to if they were going to lose bonus because they were having to bear the cost of the photo shoot, they might go back and ask the brand for images instead of shooting their own. So it's sort of these things just change behaviours and saved quite a lot of money in the end. Uh, and, you know, you just don't think for you or me or whoever, somebody in the finance team, that's kind of second nature. But actually, it was a huge step forward for some of the people some of the teams yeah so that's that's you bringing the um, the exp- you know, expertise in finance and sharing that with other people in the business to get to cfo you also need to have other skills are there any others that you think are particularly important outside the finance function to you know in the role of cfo well i, I think the whole concept of building relationships throughout the company 
and beyond the company in terms of developing your career, but within the company for the role in question is absolutely critical. You need to get out of finance. You, you need to change people's perception of finance as being accounting, you know, which, which suggests that it's kind of scorekeeping and, and its contribution is relatively limited to finance, which is much more about business partnering, thinking ahead, planning and helping people get more out of, the, uh, out of what they're spending on. So to the extent that, that you can do, you know, helping marketing with understanding their customer acquisition to the extent that they're not looking at it, although many companies obviously are, but you'll often find that finance is the repository of analysis skills. And that is that gives you a reason to get beyond finance and get out there and talking to other people. Um, so I, I think that and, and having the confidence to present well and clearly. So. Again, when we were developing these tools, we were presenting them to the teams, taking their comments, and definitely the, the extent to which you were able to talk to them confidently about what you expected to do contributed hugely to the take-up uh, of these tools. Okay. Now, many of our listeners uh, have set their sights on becoming a CFO one day. So what would you say are the top three things that they should be focusing on now to help them towards that objective? Gosh, three. I can, well, you can give me one or two if you like. I might have a couple more, but I think <laughs> oh. I, I think um, the first thing, and it, it, it is networking. And, and I know all the books say this, and I hated it doing it. I'm not a natural networker, and perhaps many people who work in finance aren't. But it's, it's absolutely true. I, I got my first CFO role through someone I'd worked with, and it came up when I was having lunch with him. I, I got the role outside of a headhunter process where there's no way I would have got into a headhunter process, but they were looking for a, a specific range of skills. I kind of ticked the box boxes for some of them, but I had a very good relationship with the individual and that was a huge help. And I think throughout your career, there'll be people who you may have left five or 10 years ago, but they will retain an impression of you. And, and regardless of where you are in your career, you should network to get in front of people uh, and, and so that people talk positively about you. Second thing is, is the qualification and experience. And I, again, I think having ACCA, ACACA, SEMA, it, it matters. So it's definitely worth getting that qualification if you haven't got it already. It just removes a barrier to getting hired. It's a reason not to put you on a list. The third thing I think is helpful is what are your goals? What is it that you want to achieve? Is it recognition? Is it building a business? Is it money? What is it that's going to keep you pushing ahead in your role? I think you need to work out what that is because that's going to help you as you present yourself for roles to have it. And then the final thing, so a fourth if I'm allowed it, is, is what's your proposition? Why is it people should hire you for that role? And I think this is something that I've realized. So when I was looking for my second CFO role, um, so we, we sold a, a big stake in Brand Alley and I was looking to move to my second CFO role where I could go through again and raise money. And I was sticking my hand up for every CFO role out there. And it meant I spent a lot of, I wasted a lot of time preparing and interviewing first round interviews for things that I wasn't suitable for. And I probably didn't prepare enough for things that I would actually have been suitable and good at. So over time, I've worked out that I have a, a relative niche. I'm not for everybody. I get far fewer calls 
now when I'm looking from headhunters, but the calls that I get are far better quality. You know, I'm sure enough about what I offer to turn things down early on rather than get sucked into a process by a headhunter who wants to have a look, have a good looking long list, even though, you know, you'll spend an hour or two prepping, but then you get rejected at, at the long list stage. Um, so if you work out what your proposition is, what it is, and then work on looking for roles that, that fit that proposition, I think that that's a, a worthwhile investment in time. Good. Now, this is, as you know, the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. So as we're kind of coming towards the end now, we like to ask our guests to think about what are the most important things for CFOs and senior finance people to be thinking about and focusing on over the the short term horizon, the sort of six to 12 months, and then a little bit further out along the sort of five year time horizon. Well, I suppose the things for me are automation of the finance function. And I think that is not just a five-year time horizon, but you can do it. it. It doesn't have to be a huge exercise that takes a year to plan and, and a year to integrate and another year before you see the benefits. I think a lot of it can just can be done without external consultants, just looking around you, what is it that's taking up your team's time? When you look at your month-end timetable uh, or look at what people are doing all day, every day, what is it that can be automated? What is it that can be taken out? And then there is no doubt automation beyond that is critically important. The second thing I, I probably touched on a bit, which is this idea that finance is the repository of analytical skills. A lot of the things that finance people take as second nature are really in demand across the business. And I've come across these many situations where people didn't have the data or the skills to make decisions. So I, I do some mentoring and I come across people who, these are people at school thinking about what A-levels and what university degrees to take. And, and I hear about careers consultants at schools who are saying, don't do accountancy. AI automation is going to just kill the audit industry, kill accountancy. There's going to be no demand because it's all going to be automated. I would argue the complete opposite. The more automation there is, the more data the more you're going to need people to analyze that data, refine it, and then use it in their business. And accountancy is a phenomenal qualification to enable you to do that. It's it's a kind of a minimum. It, it shows you have a minimum level of skills. And I think that's going to be very important. The third one would be just building information systems that enable you to be flexible and adjust easily. So the example, again, about the model that we built together, it was flexible. It enabled us to provide information very swiftly to people. But it's, it's whether you have that, or whether you have a data warehouse that enables you to pull together your analysis from a single source of the truth. And that saves time with marketing claiming that sales in the month were one figure and, and the finance team saying it was another figure. If you have a single source of the truth in, a, in an information warehouse, that is definitely something that I think is going to become even more important than already because the amount of time it takes to build that single source is tiny compared to the benefit and the amount of time saved from having one. And then at a personal level, I just think you've got to keep progressing and learning. There's so many facilities available online. There's no end of books and articles being written. And I think if you are really serious about your career, and you find that the books and the articles aren't enough, you should consider investing in a coach or somebody to help you to develop your goals, develop your proposition, 
go through the issues and the challenges that you're facing so that you can actually get outside help. Not everybody has a mentor that they can turn to or look at as an example. And if you don't have that, I think it's worth considering that as it's a it's a small investment in, in the next 20 to 30 years of your career, if you view it in that context. Sound advice. Thanks very much for that, Sean. So that brings us to the end. Thank you once again for, for chatting today. It's been really interesting. Thanks for taking the time to do that. It's really a real pleasure and a good time to end. Thank you again, and I'm sure it'll be of great interest to all of our listeners. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean Wotherston as much as I did. We're keen to hear your thoughts on this episode, so please do get in touch at info at numeritas.co.uk. If you'd like to find out more about Sean or the companies he's worked for, check out his LinkedIn profile. You can find a link to that in the show notes that accompany this episode on the Numeritas website. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modeling partner. We're trusted modeling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk.